Good morning. How are we feeling this morning? Good, good. We're going to start a new series this morning called Presence. And though, though it is a new series, it's a bit of a continuation of where we led off with Abraham. And in Walking with God, the series we just ended last week, we learned something. We learned that God is never going to call us to an action or a place without giving us the assurance of His presence. Amen? Right? He's never going to call us to do something or call us to a place without giving us His presence to accompany us through it. As we pick up today, it's years later and the players are different, but we are now going to focus on how truly important it is for the people of God to appreciate the presence of God in our lives. In 1 Corinthians 6, uh, it says this, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And thus, wherever we go, we usher in with us the presence of God. How many of you have ever experienced the power of the presence of God? Ever had your hair blown back a little bit by that? Ever had your hair blown off by that? It's powerful. It gives life and it offers hope to all who encounter it. But does it carry the same kind of power and prowess when the people of God take the very presence of God for granted? Have we ever taken the presence of God for granted? Yeah. And so what I want to look at as we begin the series is we're going to examine what the Bible says about this through a series that we're simply entitling Presence. It's simple. As we witness the narrative of Israel and the Ark of the Covenant. In the day of Samuel, the Ark of the Covenant was an object said to encompass the very power and presence of God. It was hosted by in the Holy of Holies in the temple and only the high priest could enter into its presence in a lawful and orderly manner. In fact, no one... Uh, was able to enter except for him. And then once a year on a special day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, he'd enter on behalf of all of Israel to offer sacrifice for the people to cleanse them for one calendar year of sin. If the high priest was sinless himself and followed the order of God to the letter, then God would forgive the people for yet one more year, removing the penalty of sin and allowing the high priest to live. In the day of Samuel, that high priest's name was Eli. And it was with him that our story today begins. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 4 today, but to understand uh, 1 Samuel 4, we have to be able to recognize the passages leading up to it are very important. Context is so important. So there's several things that lead up to this chapter. In 1 Samuel 2, Eli is, uh, I'm going to read it for you, um, but he's kind of warned. He's visited by a prophet. Before he does, it says there's a problem. Eli has two sons his names are, whose names are Hophni and Phinehas. It says in verse 12, it says that Eli's sons were wicked men. They did not respect the Lord or the priest's share of the sacrifices for the people. So the high priest has two priestly sons who are wicked in taking advantage of the people. Every time the people would come in to offer burnt offering or sacrifice, they would, they would get fat themselves off that sacrifice and they were taking advantage of the people's opportunity to worship. Okay? The leadership was wicked. It goes on to say that they were defiling women. They were taking advantage of them when they'd come to worship. These men were vile and wicked and it says that Eli noticed in verse 22, now Eli was very old and he heard about everything that his sons were doing in Israel and how they were sleeping with women who had served the entrance of the tent of the meeting. He said to them, why are you doing these things? I've heard about your evil actions from all the people. Now my sons, the news I hear of the Lord's people spreading is not good. If one person sins against another, God can intercede for him. 
But if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? I want you to hold to that truth right there, that thought. And I want you to recognize what Eli is saying as we get to know Eli a little bit better. But if you sin against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to their father since the Lord intended to kill them. And by contrast, the boy Samuel grew in stature and favor with the Lord and with people. Now, the next verse says, a man of God came to Eli, a prophet. So here's what we understand so far in chapter 2 before we get to chapter 4. That Eli is the high priest, the one that's responsible for, for offering uh, atonement for the people. He intercedes between God and the people of Israel. He has two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And daily there is sacrifice offered by the people that they're taking advantage of. And the leadership have disregarded the order of God in the presence of God, the power of God. They've taken their position and their responsibility into their own hands and made it about them and not him. And so when they did that, they led the people to disregard God's voice, presence, and power. Okay? And this is where we are. So before we go any further, I want to give you your three points today and we'll unpack them as we go. Here they are. When we take for granted God or his presence, number one, it happens one decision at a time. We stair step down, slippery slope. When we, too, take the presence of God for granted, it distorts our reality. And number three, when we have a tendency to take the presence of God for granted, we become God. Hello? Okay. So, verse Samuel 2, 29 and 30. As Eli has heard of the wickedness of his sons. He comes to him and says this, Why then do all of you despise my sacrifices and offerings that I require at a place of worship? You've honored your sons, Eli, more than me by making yourselves fat with the best part of all the offerings for my people Israel. Verse 30. But now this is the Lord's declaration. No longer. So a prophet shows up after Eli's recognized the wickedness of his sons and after he's heard from the people about their wickedness and there's another son, a, a surrogate son that is there in the house that was given to them. And in 1 Samuel 1, you'll read about a woman named Hannah, her husband Elkanah and their son Samuel. Samuel came from Hannah who was barren and she was a gift from the Lord. In fact, a year prior to his birth, she came to worship under Eli and begged for a son and prayed before him and said, if you'll give me a son, God, I'll give him back to you. You read into chapter two that she has a son when it's weaned, gives him to Eli to be raised and then comes back to worship him annually. And it says that he grew in stature and wisdom and favor with God and the people and he innocently worshiped and served before the Lord. Every year, Hannah would come back and make a robe for him to, worship, to, to serve in. And it says that Eli even blessed her for what she had done in sacrificing her son back to the Lord, that he opened her womb and gave her more children. So Samuel's a miracle child who's been given to the Lord. And it says, in contrast to the wickedness of Eli and, I mean, Hophni, Eli, and Phinehas, Eli the father, Hophni and Phinehas' sons, in contrast to their wickedness is Samuel. The name Samuel is important. Samuel has two titles in the Hebrew. One, it is God's name. It says the name of God. 
or two, that God has heard. Now, how many of you believe that the people of God are becoming frustrated when they come to a place of worship and seek to worship, but they're being taken advantage of by their leadership? How many of you think this would be a little stifling? Just slightly. And so the people are frustrated and God presents for himself and for the people, Samuel, God has heard the stifled cry of his people. How many of you know that when God calls you to something, he's always going to provide? Amen. All right, so he provides for the people. So the prophet comes and says, okay, Eli, in chapter 2, you have been, uh, your sons are wicked. You've not restrained your sons because when you did what you did, okay, how many of you, let's, let's just be honest. I asked this question in the last series. How many of you have ever met uh, parents who kind of worship their kids? Ever met them do that? And like, when you do that, you have a tendency to be a little passive with your kids, right? And so like they do something wrong and it's, it's bad and you know it's wrong and and you should go in and like be the authority, be the leadership, set up boundary for them so they understand what they can push, what they can't. But how many of you have ever seen, not you, you've seen someone else. You've seen someone else not restrain their kids, right? So like you walk in and they've murdered someone and you give them a slap on the wrist, right? It's like, stop it. Okay, right? All right, this is Eli. Eli has passively recognized what is wrong and he goes to his boys and says, stop it passively. And they continue. He recognizes how wrong it is, but no course of action changes. And so when, when no course of action changes, guess what? God's going to send another message. And he sends a, a prophet who says to Eli, look, you've not restrained your sons. So you're done. When we take for granted the presence of God, the power of God, and the counsel of God, we might miss out on God. Now, I want to say this so that we understand. The ark of God was a box. It was very orderly and it was, it was beautiful, but it was a box. Have we ever been able to put God in a box? No. It just represented his presence. His presence would always be with him. But as we witness in this story today, we're going to see the box get stolen. So in their minds, the very presence of God is taken with it. God will never leave his people. Amen? But he chastens those he loves in Hebrews 12. How many of you think that God is very okay with teaching his people the value of his presence when they take it for granted. Hello. So, so the prophet comes and says no longer. And then in chapter three, we see the presence of God show up in the boy Samuel. And he begins to speak to Samuel. And he tells Samuel, the, uh, uh, like he calls for Samuel in the night. This is the first time Samuel's ever interacted with God. He doesn't understand the voice, doesn't recognize, takes three times. He goes to Eli, his mentor, and Eli goes, oh, it must be God calling the boy. So he tells him to go rest and listen and say, speak for your servant is listening. And Samuel receives a prophecy. And the first prophecy ever given to him is the very thing the prophet in chapter 2 told Eli. Eli asks, what is that prophecy? And 
He says, don't withhold any of it from me. Don't try to soften the blow. Just tell me what God said. It's been so long since we've had widespread revelation and a message for the people from God because of the sin in my own camp. So tell me. And Samuel just opens his mouth and says, God says, you're done. Chapter 4 is the fruition of all that coming to be. So in chapter 4, here it is, point 1. When we take the presence of God for granted, it happens one decision at, at a time. Eli chose to not listen, led his sons to not listen, disregard the power and presence of God, which led the people to, and God writes it by bringing Samuel. But here we see what happens. In verse 1 of chapter 4, And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped at Ebenezer while the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines lined up in battle formation against Israel. And as the battle intensified, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who struck down about 4,000 men of the Israelites on the battlefield. When the troops returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Let's bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh. Then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. So the people sent the men to Shiloh to bring back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Armies, who was enthroned between the cherubim. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. When the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord entered the camp, all of Israel raised such a loud shout that the ground shook. Listen to this. The Philistines heard the sound of the cry and asked, What's this loud shout of the Hebrews' camp? That would make sense. They just lost 4,000 men the day before. The Philistines are like, we're winning. Why are they screaming? When the Philistines discovered the ark of the Lord had entered the camp, they panicked. A God has entered the camp. Woe to us, nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who will rescue us from these magnificent gods, these gods who slaughtered the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Show some courage. Be men, you Philistines. Otherwise, you'll serve the Hebrews just as they served you. Now be men and fight. Verse 10, so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and each man fled to his tent. The slaughter was severe. 30,000 of the Israelite foot soldiers fell. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Good day. Everything that was told to Eli by Samuel, and at the end of chapter 3, it says that the people of God had accepted that Samuel was a confirmed prophet of the Lord. So they're turning their ear to Samuel now. And the people have lined up against the Philistines, their sworn enemies, and they go into battle. 4,000 men go down and listen to this. The elders of Israel, those who should know better, but their leadership has led them to disregard the power and presence of God. So they, in turn, disregard it and they start treating what they know to encompass the presence of God like a party favor. How many of you have ever had a plan or a course of action that you came up with and then later asked God to bless it? You know what I'm talking about? Didn't consult God whatsoever in the beginning. You just said, hey, God, I'm going to do this now. Come on. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is a place where we find the Philistines. And so we, they turn to God. I need our church to listen very intently. 
because I don't think any of us have ever done this, but maybe. They turn to God only in crisis. Otherwise, they disregard his presence. Otherwise, it's not important to them. They see 4,000 men go down and they go, what happened? Let's call on God. Otherwise, he doesn't matter. When the people of God treat the presence and power of God like that, the world has no hope. And so here's, here's what they decide to do. The elders, those who should know better, say, hey, let's bring the party favor in and then surely, surely we'll succeed. And the Philistines are scared. Why? Because the power and the reputation of the presence of God has preceded the ark. They know of what happened with this God in the Egyptians. They understand of 400 years of bondage and then the plagues and then the removal and the exodus. They've heard of this. So the power of God has gone even before the Israelites in this battle with the Philistines. The Philistines are terrified. The next day, as they go into battle, they are wildly successful. Now, is that because God all of a sudden was less powerful? Is that all because all of a sudden God stopped working? Or do we believe that God loves those and he loves his people so much that he'll teach us a lesson? And how many of you have ever had that lesson taught to you that you don't know what you got till it's gone? How many of you believe that God allowed the people to feel the weight, the gravitas of what life might be like without the ark, without the presence of God. So 30,000 slain, the wicked sons who have turned everyone to disregard God slain, the ark of God captured. In contrast is Samuel. Next point. These people have had their, their reality distorted by their simple disregard for God in His presence. They have a tendency to ignore God's warning. Eli did it, and so they did it. How many of you remember, lo, I stand at the door and knock? How many of you have ever had God try to get your attention, but you just ignored it? Whether consciously or subconsciously? Let's talk about consciously. How many of you have ever consciously ignored God? And how'd that turn out? How many of you had God pounding on the heart, a doorstep of your heart and mind, but you ignored and you kept ignoring and kept ignoring until that pounding became less and less and you felt more comfortable with it less and less. But then later on, God decides to remind us that, you know, he is God. And then everything that we placed in our lives in in. in place of him that we put up and set up in front of him he starts to strip and pull away so where we have nowhere to look but up drops us on our backs and we're at the bottom of the barrel where we have nowhere to look but we go oh god anyone know what i'm talking about okay so it distorts a reality here's one of the largest questions i have here okay is recap eli was warned twice in prophecy even warns his son once with no change. Eli honors his sons more than God, it says. He doesn't recognize the voice of God at first when it's calling Samuel. That's how distant it's become. It costs him his ministry. Once the ark is taken, both his sons are killed. Israel is slaughtered. And the shock of the news, as we read on, will kill him. 
And I wonder, here, let me just read that part. Let's go, let's go look at that for a second. Okay, so it says, That same day the Benjamite man ran from battle, verse 12, and came to Shiloh. His clothes were torn, which is a sign of mourning in the Old Testament, and there was dirt on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair beside the road watching. Listen to these words. Because he was anxious about the ark of God. When the man entered the city, he gave report to, and the entire city cried out. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the commotion? The man quickly came and reported to Eli. At that time, Eli was 98 years old. His eyes didn't move because he couldn't see. The man said to Eli, I'm the one who came from battle. I fled from there today. What happened, my son? Eli asked. The messenger answered, Israel has fled from the Philistines. And also there was a great slaughter amongst the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. The ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair off the city gate. And since he was old and heavy, he broke his neck and died. Eli had judged Israel for 40 years. Reading on, Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. When she heard the news about the capture of God's ark and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she collapsed and gave birth because of her labor pains coming upon her. As she was dying, the women taking care of her said, Don't be afraid, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory of God has departed from Israel, referring to the capture of the ark of God and to the deaths of her father-in-law and husband. The glory has departed from Israel, she said, because the ark of God has been captured. Listen, I don't know what happened other than just becoming comfortably numb or desensitized to the entire process. But when the elders of Israel lose their minds in battle and say, let's bring the ark of God out, what was it in Eli that didn't stop the whole process? When they come back knowing that only Hophni and Phinehas, the priests, can go into that, that, that presence of God and carry that out only under the order and permission of Eli, the high priest, why did he not stop this? Make sense? He probably may have been so consumed with what he had heard about 4,000 Israelites being slain. He's like, well, maybe it will work. Maybe this will happen. And you have to become very scared when your leadership begins to treat God like a party favor. When leadership begins to do what it wants and then ask God to bless it, we all ought to freak out a little bit. But Eli doesn't stop the process. His entire reality is distorted. And it's not till after the ark is gone that it says that he comes, becomes greatly anxious. His anxiety builds because he didn't know what he had till it was gone. And he waits intently on the city wall. He's a big man, a blind man, and he's sitting waiting. He hears this commotion as a one runs back from battle, survives, tearing his clothes and mourning because the ark is gone. Eli himself is mourning because the ark is gone. And now, now he hears his worst fear. The revelation has come true. The sons are dead. But even more than my sons or even more than the slaughter of Israel, the very presence and glory of God has departed. It's been taken by our enemies. And it was my responsibility it was my responsibility to usher the presence of God, to intercede for the people, and the ark has been captured. Leads to such a strenuous, anxiety, anxious response that he dies. He falls off the, the wall, snaps his neck, and then 
upon hearing, upon hearing about the death of Eli and her husband Phineas, she is in, in stress, induced into labor, is the, the mother of who would be Ichabod. The glory of God has departed. Why? Because two priests are dead. Two of our leaders are dead. And the glory, the ark of God is gone from his people. This is a dark day. Point three. Why did it happen? So when you take the presence of God for granted, you become God. You start to tell God what you're really concerned about. You let God know who's most important and who you actually worship. You let God know that the order of him or the power of him or the presence of him or what he desires from his people is not important. What's important is you and what you want and what you desire. And when, when, <laughs> when the power and presence of God had vacated the premises, Eli almost like snaps back into reality. It's like he gets his mind back. But what led to that was he lost his mind. Started to get his priorities mixed up. Thought he was God himself. Maybe believed his own hype. Didn't restrain his sons. And because he hadn't seen anything happen yet, even though he'd been warned time and time again, and even though he can witness that God isn't speaking to him anymore, God is bypassing him to speak to Samuel. Nothing happens. He even allows the ark to be stolen. And it's only at that point he goes, oh my gosh, I didn't know what I had and now it's gone. Please just let it return. No. Please just let them live. No, I told you about this. You had your chance. How many of you have ever had God try to get your attention and you could join him in repentance in timely fashion, but you ignored and so, you know, God had to humble you. You had the opportunity to humble yourself. God will bless those and give grace to those who humble themselves. But those who are proud, God will humble himself. And so the leader, the high priest, the one to intercede gets humbled. His ministry over, his life over, his kids over. And what is left is a remnant of what happened in this travesty. A baby, a baby is born with the name. The glory of God is gone. Everyone in Israel is in mourning. Let me ask you a question. If the presence of God departed us, would we mourn? If, if the presence of God departed the people of the fellowship, would we mourn? I think that's a fair question. Here's, here's what I want to ask. If, when we decide to be God... We start to treat the one true and only God like Santa Claus. What happened in this story is they were willing to turn to God when they needed something. Go sit on his lap and ask for help. But other than that, he didn't exist. Showing up only when they needed it, maybe once a year. Are we going to be a people who would recognize that our very breath that is within us came from him. And Paul said, to live as Christ, to die as gain. What are you doing with that breath? 
turning to him only in crisis, asking for stuff because you yourself have become the God of existence, or you recognize to live as Christ, to die as gain. And so your day is not your own. Your life is not your own. Whatever God has called you to do, he's never going to leave you alone to accomplish it. You usher with you as a temple of the Holy Spirit, the very presence and power of God wherever you go. How many people in your life, how many lost people in your life recognize that because of the hope you bring with you as you enter? See, I've always been one to believe that the people of God, when they walk in a room, should change the entire atmosphere of that room. I believe that when they walk in, because the power and presence of God walks with them, the whole room should look different. There should be hope that comes in. But when we treat God like Santa Claus, there's no hope. They've heard of that. Are we going to be God or are we going to allow God to be God? Because when we treat God like God, he loves us enough to go silent a little bit. To where we'll search for him, where we'll find him. He'll never leave his people. Hebrews 13, 5 says, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you, but I will teach you. And I will prune you. And I will show you just how important my presence is. I will show you just how powerful my presence is as opposed to what you can do. And I offer hope. So, in conclusion, when we take God for granted, it doesn't just affect you. It doesn't just affect us. It affects everyone around us. The entire people of Israel suffered because we had a tendency you saw leadership begin to disregard the power and presence of God and it trickled down like dominoes. God allows the ark of God to be taken to teach Israel about the importance of God's presence and that he would never leave them. But he loved them enough to teach them. Does God love you enough to teach you? How many of you have ever had to hear some or learn some really hard lessons with the Lord? The presence of God and the power therein should beckon our response. Would we mourn the presence of God departing us? Have you ever felt the weight of God being distant? Have you ever needed God and probably turned to him in time of crisis, but he seemed silent? How lonely does that feel? Did you ever think for a moment that maybe I should have turned to him before crisis. Maybe I should walk with him. Maybe I'd be able to recognize his voice if I weren't doing my own thing and turning my back on his knocking. Some people have a tendency, and I just want to throw this out. Some people, when the presence of God departs or God becomes silent, they don't, they don't beckon and they don't go pursuing it, recognize that God will always out-pursue you. He loves you enough to out-pursue you. But some people, and I have friends, I have many atheist friends who decided, you know what, God, if you're not going to talk to me, they grew bitter and they walked away. And because I see nobody in the church living as if the power and presence of God is something worth cherishing, submitting to, repenting before, because I don't see that in my church, I don't buy this anymore. And in bitterness, they walk away. Most atheists were formerly Christians. Most, many atheists that I know were formerly seminary students studying for the pastorate. Hello? Leaders who took the very power and presence of God for granted and when they had the most opportunity, the most hope, 
their most need. God got silent and they got bitter. And the world around them didn't come and say, don't lose hope. Because the way the church treated the presence of God was like a party favor as well. Only turning, him to, only turning to him in crisis and only turning to him when he could fulfill some need for themselves. Church, this morning, in our response to God, we must repent. Here's why. How many of you have ever done this? Hands raised. Taking the presence of God for granted. It's okay. God's not going to like kill any of us today. He already knows. As the band comes, they're going to sing a prayer over us. And they're going to lead us. We have opportunity. This altar is open. Your seat can become an altar right where you are. There are people here that, guys, listen. Guys, in your home, you're the leader of your home. If you take the presence of God for granted, what do you expect your wife and kids to do? If, if you are like, hey, I'm not married, I'm single. Listen, if you're the only uh, Christian in your friend's group, if you take the power and presence of God for granted, what do you expect the, church, the, the world to do? What hope does the lost world around you have? How many of you have a lot of lost friends? How many of you would say that they have hope because I cherish the presence of God? Father, this morning, may we be a people who cherish your presence and may we not take the things that you do in and through our midst for granted. May we be a people who would not need your chastening because this morning we hear you and we respond to you alone and we hit our faces. We come to your altar and we say, God, forgive us for only turning to you in crisis. God, forgive us for treating you like Santa Claus. May we come to your table and say, God, thank you that you loved us enough to offer yourself and die so that we wouldn't have to and we could live in your presence. Let us live today with the breath that's in our body for you, not for ourselves. You are God, we are not. So God, today, will you have your way with your people, break our hearts again, and let us be grateful in our response right now to you in Jesus' name.